Good morning, Village Church. Good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Would you open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 1? John, chapter 1. Um, I, w- I want to share with you a story or two, but before I do, I have to preface my stories. I had an incredible childhood. I did. <laughs> Objectively, <laughs> John. <laughs> no, you didn't. I did. Uh, I... I I had the joy to grow up in the 80s. And, and here's what that means. It means we could go anywhere we wanted as long as we told our mom where we were going. It means, it means I could ride my bike and ride my bike and ride my bike. It means in the summers, I could leave in the morning and come home after dark. It meant I got to eat over at my friend's house without having my mom have to call their mom and say, can Michael come over and have lunch with you? It was just standard kids like migrated. It was wonderful. It was delightful. Nobody was afraid I was going to be kidnapped or trafficked. We would go, like, follow train tracks as far as we possibly could. And then the train would come, and we'd put pennies or something on, and we'd hide and hope it didn't fling over and kill us, and then we'd go get it. And I mean, this was, it was a grand time. So I have to tell you, being, being a child, I had a great, great time growing up. Now, the stories that I want to share with you might make you think otherwise, but let me, let me be clear. It was wonderful, and I had very attentive parents. My, I think my earliest memory um, goes back to probably a traumatic moment for me. And I remember being in our family room, and I remember there was a sleeping bag there. I have no idea why. Now, you, gotta, you also got to remember, this is like four- to five-year-old kid memory, so details, you know, but this is how my brain processed it. And there was a sleeping bag, and I thought to myself, I bet they'll never find me in there. And so it was one of those sleeping bags that you could zip all the way around and close yourself in. It had a zipper on the inside and the outside. And so I get into the sleeping bag, I zip myself in, and lo and behold, I'm not the center of the world, and nobody comes looking for me. And I don't know, I have no idea how much time passed. It could have been 10 seconds, it could have been a half hour, I don't don't know. All I remember is thinking, I need to get out now. And so I tried to find the zipper, and I frantically panicked because I couldn't. And I got all discombobulated, and I started screaming. And I I don't know how long it took for someone to come find me, but in my story, it was at least a half an hour, and I almost died. (laughs) But I remember my my brother, eventually, he came over, and he opened, uh, opened it up. And I just remember thinking to myself, thank God. And he looks at me, and he says, what are you doing in there? To this day, when I get in a sleeping bag, I have to tell myself, you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. <laughs> then about five years old, and I know this because we, we moved to a new home when I was five years old outside of Detroit, Michigan. And I had the joy of sharing a bedroom with my older brother, David. And we had a bunk bed. And guess who gets the top bunk? Older brother, because he's a bully. So I was stuck at the bottom. And every night, it was the same routine. Mike, go turn off the lights. So here I am, and I get out of bed, and I slowly walk over, frustrated and complaining. And you know that feeling? I don't know if you've ever felt this, but like, you're like, all right, it's going to be dark. It's going to be fine. I've got it. We're going to count down. This is every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Boom, run. Jump into my bed. But there was an added psychological obstacle. On the wall, right in front of the light, where also visible from where I lie lie down to go to bed, 
was a poster. Now, before I show you a picture of the poster, if you have a child that is, say, I'm going to give under eight years old and does not like to see men dressed up in the 80s in makeup as zombies, <laughs> cover their eyes. I'm going to give you just a second. <laughs> On the wall is the poster of Michael Jackson's Thriller. You can do it. Five, four, three, three, two, one. I'd run into bed and I'm like, they're not gonna get me. They're not gonna get me. They're not gonna get me. And I would just stay with one eye, sleep with one eye open for Metallica. That has like a whole new meaning for me. It's like watching like that stupid poster. And I don't know how long it took for my parents to realize this was probably not a healthy thing for like, I don't know, a five-year-old to like go to bed to every night. Inevitably that came down and then I got my own room, praise God. But it's interesting, like I, I can go back to my younger years and tell you some of my most traumatic stories. In fact, probably the most traumatic story of my younger years happened when I was seven years old, had to do with the dark. And you'll have to ask me privately in case I trigger somebody what that story was. The darkness, it's petrifying when you're little. But you know, we have, we have this privilege to turn on the light, to call mom and dad, take the poster down, to make things just a little bit safer. We can call them in and say, make sure there's no monsters in the closet, make sure everything's okay. But the dark is objectively petrifying. And, and when the Apostle John lived in this world for decades, he, he had one word to describe the spiritual state of this world. And he used the word darkness over and over and over again. He looks around, he's like, it's just dark. It's scary. Like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I wanted to find the word, the, the, the concept of spiritual darkness for you, so we can just make sure we're on the same page here. It's the state of being unable to recognize or to love spiritual light. So when he looked at the world, he's like, they can't even see it. And if they could see it, it's like they, they hate it. And I want to be clear as we talk about spiritual darkness. Are they lacking light? No. They're lacking the ability to see the light. And so the Bible calls these people, Jesus specifically calls them blind. Remember when Jesus calls the Pharisees blind guides? And the interesting thing about the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the first century is that they literally had the light, the revelation of God. They devoted their lives to studying it, interpreting it, applying it, and then by law to make sure all the other Jewish people applied it perfectly as well. Their entire life devoted to staring into the light of God's word. And they couldn't see it. And when the true light that it spoke of showed up, what did they do? They killed it. See, you might be asking here, like, how does somebody even get spiritual vision? And you only ever get spiritual vision in one way and one way only. And it is by coming to Jesus and asking him to forgive your sins and give you eyes to see. That is it. There is no capacity for any human in any generation in anywhere on the planet to be able to be given spiritual sight unless it is given through personally trusting in Jesus Christ. So scripture um, describes, uses, there's like three big words that it would use to describe uh, the experience of somebody who is living in spiritual darkness. And here's the first word, confusion. Proverbs 4, 19 describes this well. 
He says, the, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. And here's, here's the irony of spiritual blindness. You have all these people in the world who are spiritually blind. And then some other blind person says, I can see, follow me. Well, here's a conundrum. If you're spiritually blind, if you're physically blind, how do you even like justify whether or not somebody is actually blind or not? But these spiritually blind people are telling the rest of blind people, come follow me, I have the way of life. And they are just confusing. And they change from one truth to the next. And, and they're actually not leading you anywhere but confusion, but where blind people lead blind people. Number two, those in spiritual darkness are characterized by another word, which is groping. This is to feel about or to search blindly with uncertainty. Isaiah chapter 59 says this, it describes spiritual darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. If you are spiritually blind, finding God is like dropping you in the middle of North America and saying, you need to find a very specific fish at the bottom of Lake Superior. A, you'll never get there, and if you do get there, you're going to drown in the process, which is why we don't get spiritual light by groping for it. We need to be told about it. We need to be drawn to it, taken to it. We need to be given by faith eyes to see. And number three, those in spiritual darkness, they're characterized by another word in Scripture, which is immorality. Now, the, the person living in spiritual darkness will rarely call themselves immoral. But here's what Ephesians 5 says. Take no part in, un in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And without light directing them from the outside, from God's word, and with, honestly, a heart that before Jesus is wired to have an affection for darkness, the result is inevitably immorality. And the one thing that we find that people who are living in a moral life, they have this thing called a conscience that God has put into every human. And some people haven't, haven't like quenched it completely yet. And even as they live in a moral life and they, they like it and they enjoy it and they like are kind of just, but there's this little piece of them that knows that if there is a God, he's not really pleased that these things are probably not the good things that you want to be the most proud of. So I want to just ask you a quick question. As you think about confusion and groping and immorality as it pertains to spiritual and eternal things, does this describe you? And I don't, I don't say these things, honestly, to be unnecessarily judgmental or, or condemning or to make you feel terrible. But it is not unusual. People walk through the doors of our church. They have no clarity to eternal things. They don't know what they believe. They don't know what is true. They don't know what is real. And, and, and one of the privileges I have is when people find out I'm a pastor, things can get pretty honest, pretty real. And the number of times that people will acknowledge, it's like, I can't stop myself. It's like they know they're dark. They know they, they, they know that they have these impulses. They know that they don't know where they're going. They know they don't know what truth is, and they're just looking for direction. And, and sometimes when people meet a pastor, they either like stay away from me, or they're like, what do you believe? And they're, they're hoping that maybe I can be a guide that can point them in a, in a better direction. But if you're here, and those three words describe you, I have just incredible news for you. 
that Jesus Christ is here to shine light on the darkness, but not just that, take the veil, the scales off of your eyes so that you can actually see the light that is shining all around you, pointing the way with clarity to eternal life, to the heart of God, to the name of God, to the motivations of God, to the purpose of all of this. All of that has been revealed, and God wants to show you this if you'll trust in Christ. It's wonderful news. Now, Village Church, can I just say the obvious for a moment? The solution to darkness is always and will always be the light of Jesus Christ, period. And people will grope and they will search and they will find anything they can to hopefully maybe satisfy this sense of darkness they have inside. And then here's one of the most normal responses. When you know that you won't find it with certainty, you just give up. You live your life and you push away the questions of life after death and eternity because you have no one to give you the answers. But our God is so good, he did not leave us groping, he did not leave us wondering. He provided unbelievable clarity through the living word, Jesus, and the written word in the Bible. So in light of this, I want you to turn with me, John chapter one, verse four, I wanna read verses four through nine. It says, in him was life. Okay, him is Jesus, right? No tricks here, just Bible, Bible answer. In him was life, and Jesus was life. And the life, it was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, John, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, whose name is Jesus, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So in scripture, light does five things. Number one, light emanates from the very person of God. This is actually what we call the glory of God, the fullness of the light spectrum. If you stood in the presence of the light of God, it would incinerate you to pieces. First Timothy 6 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. If fallen sinners meander their way into the glory of God, the light would incinerate you. It is more glorious and hot than the sun itself. Number two, light keeps everything alive. The first words in the Bible out of God's mouth is, let there be light. All life everywhere requires life. Even those really ugly fish thingies deep down, like in the pitch black part of the Mariana Trench, right? Even they need the whole ocean above them and the ecosystem to be sustained by light in order for them to even just live. We need it. In Illinois, what do we get? Sad Seasonal affective disorder, right? We need the vitamin D from the sun, and we all get real just bummer. I don't know if I can get out of bed today. And light is the source of all life. And scripture, light reveals, number three, reality to those with sight. Without it, you just grope around and fumble and you're confused, but it also reveals spiritual reality, what is clear and real and true and what is happening behind the scenes, Light number four also reflects the way of life when you live according to God's word. If you are living in the light, you are living according to God's word. When you see what God's word wants you to do and believe and shift, you follow this. This is living in the light. But number five, Jesus is the light. 
He is, Numbers 1 through 4, he is the glory of God. He is the source of all physical and spiritual life. He reveals reality, physical and spiritual, for anybody who asks him for it. And he is the living word perfectly showing us the heart, the mind, and the desires of God. So in light of all of this, let's come back to John chapter 1, and we're going to look at one verse, verse 5. John says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I want you to just consider this singular verse from the perspective of John. John wrote this decades after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. John wrote this decades after having pastured and planted many churches. Uh, in that time, John had to deal with false teacher, false prophets, false apostles, one after another after another, Roman political leaders, despots who wanted to kill and put out the flame of Jesus Christ, murderous Jewish leaders, violent pagans. The list goes on and on and on and on. And John gets to closer to the end of his life, and there are just two facts that John has learned to be true about darkness, particularly when Jesus came into this world. Fact number one, spiritual darkness hates Jesus. The presence of Jesus literally threatens its, its, its existence. Who wins? You turn the light on? Does darkness ever in any world overcome the light? Never. And the spiritual realm knows this. It's almost sort of like God designed the laws of the universe that darkness could never win in the presence of life. Verse 5, the darkness has not overcome it. And Jesus enters as the brightest shining light in all of human history into the darkest world. And they hate him for it. Why? When somebody is in spiritual darkness, their idol is in control. And idols don't take threats well. And they don't die easy, and they don't die quiet. After all, they are cooperating with the demonic realm to dupe you, the host, so that they can feed off of you, survive, and live all at the expense of your body and your soul. Let me, let me illustrate how aggressive and defensive idols are. Can we get personal? A Christian young woman is dating a boy she knows doesn't take the Lord seriously. In fact, she knows, if she's being honest, he only goes to church because of her. He has really no record of a personal relationship with God and barely knows the scriptures. What happens when you sit down and tell her, I don't think this boy's good for you spiritually? Defensiveness and anger. Why? Because the idol of being loved is in control. A spouse is spending too much money on their credit card, shopping, eating out, whatever. You recognize it's a habit, maybe a coping mechanism, maybe it's an addiction, and the husband or the wife kind of gets the courage to sit down and say, hey, um, we, by we I mean mostly you, you're spending too much money. There's a class at Villa's Church, it's called Financial Peace. You should consider, I don't know, going to it. It might be good. Almost always, what is the initial reaction when you poke at the idol? 
You spent this much money. That's so good. Anger and defensiveness. One spouse refuses to tithe. The other spouse wants to be generous. The church has been transformative for their family. You sit down and you say, I'd like to talk about tithing. What do you get in response? We can't do that. Are you kidding me? Anger and then defensiveness. Why? Because the idol of greed is at work. They don't die quick. They don't die easy and they don't die quiet. Some of you, you're a little bit uncomfortable. Why? Because I poked. When a preacher pokes at your idol, you turn on the preacher. It's normal. We're used to this. Or you turn on your spouse or kids or something of the sorts. If you're me, you just go eat more food. There we go. <laughs> so mature Christian, can we just talk for a moment? I know all of you just perked up. He's talking to me. Here's a, here's a warning. Tread wisely as you bear the light of Christ and you poke at people's idols with that light. Because the closer you bring Jesus, the light of Christ, to the darkness of an idol, it's going to get squeamish. It's going to get really uncomfortable. Listen, listen to what Jesus says in John 3, 3.20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? What do, no, of course you're not going to come to the light because it exposes you for what you really are lest his works should be exposed. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gets the disciples together and he's sending them out to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to the Jewish people city by city. And he gives them, I think, one of the most epic prep talks on the planet. You're gonna basically bring the light of the good news and you're gonna bring it to darkness. Here's what you should expect. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. They are going to want to devour you. So he says this, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Then he goes on, because he needs to give them probably a better pep speech. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness, about, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't worry, you're going to get delivered over and they're probably going to beat you and flog you. But when you do, don't be anxious, he says. Don't be anxious how you're going to speak, what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Oh, in case that wasn't enough, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child. And the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Um, this is very reminiscent of Nazi Germany. And in our world, for the first time, I'm like, I actually see how politics can cause family to betray family in the first time. I see that that's possible. And then he says this, and you will be, in case this wasn't motivating enough, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus understands that the weight of carrying light to darkness is dangerous. It doesn't mean we don't do it. It means we do it wisely and carefully and intentionally, evaluating the context, but never afraid, understanding that if you are going to live the light of Christ in a dark world, the closer people or you bring Jesus to them, 
Honestly, sometimes the more they're gonna push away from you. Why? Because light exposes darkness. After decades in ministry, John learned a second fact, and here it is, spiritual darkness cannot, cannot overcome the light of Jesus. It just can't. They tried killing Jesus, came back to life, conquered death, atoned for sin in the process and made a mockery of the evil one. They tried killing the apostles. Every time they did, guess what would happen? More people would come to Christ. They tried persecuting Christians. Christianity just grew faster with every single martyr who died. They tried destroying God's word. People just memorized it and it spread even faster. They tried bringing in false teachers into the church by droves and guess what happened? It just weeded out all the fake Christians. Ended up being a huge gift to the church because like, you're not real, you're not real, you're not real, and it purified the church. Within two centuries, Christianity went from being on the run to being the dominant religion in the empire. What? And John, John's reflecting on decade after decade of ministry, and he is convinced it doesn't matter what you do, the darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ. It's gonna make you feel like it is, but it can't. It's literally not humanly possible. The light of Christ is going to win. And then you get to Jesus' ministry. His ministry, the beginning and the end, I think were the hardest parts. The beginning, the Holy Spirit guides Jesus into the wilderness. He's fasting for 40 days, puts him with the devil himself, and the devil is tempting him and tempting him, trying to snuff out the light of Christ, make him doubt God. And what Jesus does time and time again is that he responds to the evil one with the word of God and the light cannot be put out. At the very end of his life, he is about to bear on his body, soul, and emotions the full weight of God's wrath. And he is so anxious that he's sweating blood and he ends his prayer with not my will, but yours be done. The light of Christ can never be put out. You kill him, he rises. You kill us, more come to faith in Jesus. It's the nature of spiritual light. So what? I'm gonna give you three. Don't by the insidious lies of spiritual darkness. I, ju I just made a brief list. Um, what do I know about darkness? Darkness tricks. Darkness kills. Darkness will be exposed. Darkness will be shamed. Darkness will be judged. Darkness loses. Most people don't consider Jesus because they love the darkness, but something interesting is happening. It's almost like Jesus is drawing a whole bunch of people to himself in a new way in this moment in human history. People are realizing the utter failure of the darkness of this world. And, and in really intriguing ways, people's eyes are beginning to ask, what is real? What is true? Never have people been more ready to hear about the light of Jesus Christ. I, I would tell you, do not assume when you talk to somebody that God has not been at work in their heart preparing them to hear the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ that you might just have for them. You and I, we are children of the light. The light is honest. The light is life. The light is without shame. Light is authentic. Light is celebrated. Light wins. So Christian, why would we put on the jersey of the losing team if we already know who wins? Why would you do this? And so there, there's for sure gonna be pieces of darkness in your life. And I just wanna tell you that one of the greatest, greatest things you can do right now is quench out the sin of darkness in your life. Get rid of it because it will do you no good. It's the losing jersey. Because in Christ where there is life, there is light. 
Number two, when darkness gets darker, light must become brighter. John's writing this book with years of experience and darkness makes you feel like you're losing. It's all propaganda. And I don't know if you know this, but the propaganda machine in America orchestrated and coordinated by the prince of the power of the air through news and social media, we suck it in and we feel like we're losing, don't we? And yet people are coming to Christ all over the place. Like, there's no news agencies devoted to how God is building the church one life at a time all over the world, but he is. But darkness makes you feel like you're losing and therefore it discourages you. So let's be clear about a couple things. There is more and more evil in the world than ever before. The vast majority of people are just tolerating it, though. It's the minority of people who are just creating it with all of their might. But guess what? On social media, don't you feel like the minority is everybody? You do. But I'm telling you, there's a, there's a whole bunch of people who are not buying in whatsoever to the immorality. They're not playing the game. They're seeing light. They're seeing that the way of Christ is better but their goal is to make you feel like you are completely alone spiritually. Uh, I want to illustrate uh, how this victory or the level of their victory is being exaggerated. Every day, I drive by churches. I drive a lot. And it feels like, like every church is promoting sexual immorality right, like, right in their front. Like just like bragging about it. And at some point, I think to myself, is it every church? Is it literally every church? What is going on here? So in 2017, in the Washington Post, there was an article, and I want to read to you the title of the article and then a section from it. The title of the article is striking. Liberal churches are dying, but conservative churches are thriving. This is not written by a Christian, by the way. A Canadian study, here's the subtitle now, a Canadian study found that conservative churches are still growing while less orthodox congregations dwindle away. Hmm, big surprise. And then here's what they say. After statistically analyzing the data, we came to a counterintuitive discovery. Conservative Protestant theology, with its more literal view of the Bible, is a significant predictor of church growth, while liberal theology leads to decline. The results were published this month in the peer-reviewed journal, Review of Religious Research. It concludes, in other words, growing church clergy members are the most theologically conservative, while declining church clergy members are the least conservative. Hmm. Do you mean if you abandon the word of God and the gospel and the power of God, people's lives aren't transformed? Could it be? I want to be very just blunt. I know a lot of these churches, and let me tell you what is happening in the vast majority of churches that abandon the gospel and abandon the word. Nothing. Nothing. I can tell you there's no power. They're country clubs because they don't have the gospel and the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you just quantify and count the numbers, you can feel like you're outnumbered. And I'm telling you, God is saving people through the real gospel, bringing them to himself, one person after another. But this is the propaganda machine. You're losing. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is radically transforming and saving one soul after another 
one house after another, one neighborhood after another, and he's doing it powerfully, and it's not making any of your news or any of your social media feeds. Don't buy the propaganda. I sat with a pastor years ago, and the pastor asked me, they said, how do you get people, parents with kids, to come to church on Sundays? They won't come to my church because they have sports. Now, I was very kind, but I'll tell you basically what I said. You have to preach the gospel, and they need to hear the word of God. They're not coming because you're not giving them what God says you're supposed to give them. People need to hear the word and the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Of course, they're going to love sports more than Jesus because you don't give them the power of God. And the response, I can't do that. Then you're gonna reap what you sow. I'll just give you like one so what. When the world feels like it's getting darker, you have to absorb the light of Christ to the point of overflowing. And the only way to do that is to be in relational proximity to him. Have a relationship with God that is thriving to the point of overflow. It is one of the greatest things that you can do, and when you are overflowing, you, you very well may be a threat to some, but may you never be the offensive one. May it be the gospel. Finally, number three. Believe in the light. Here's what John, Jesus says in John 12. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Even if he tells you he thinks he knows where he's going, he doesn't. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Years ago, I went for a run at night in our neighborhood. I prefer to night run. That was before I was in better shape. So I was running, and I, I was just under a mile away from our house. And as I was running, uh, it felt like somebody out of the blue just socked me in the face. And I went to the ground, and I couldn't see anything. It's just black. Just I freaked out. And as I got up, it took a minute or so, and at that point, the only thing that emerged was this sliver of light at the bottom of one of my eyes where I could sort of see the ground. That was about it. Everything else was black. And as I was groping around and feeling what I had hit, I thought it was like a tree branch, what I hit was a car antenna that was bent and angled out into the sidewalk. And this thing just right in my eye. And so I... I kind of got my bearings, and as fast as I could, I made my way back. I could just see the sliver of the sidewalk, and I made my way, my way back to our house. And on the run, my brain is processing, like, am, am I going to be blind? Is this, like, my new world? Is this my new reality? Like, you know, all, the, all these things that go through your head at that time. So I get to the house, and I, I run in, and I'm stumbling, and I, I sit in the kitchen, and I'm screaming for, for my wife. And it took you a minute to get there. And I'm like, Bran, Bran. Like, and, and she's like, what happened? I'm, I'm trying to get the words out, but I'm just kind of like in panic. 
And it, it took, I would say, probably a half hour for me to be able to get my vision back. And in that half hour, like, my brain is freaking out. And, and I remember at the time, like, we had, a, we had really bad insurance, and it was $1,000 to go to the emergency room. And I'm like, what are they going to do? Tell me I'm blind? So, like, I'm not going to the emergency room. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and, and I remember when it finally started to come back, I've never been more grateful for my sight. I've never been more grateful to see the world and to see clearly. And, and there are some of you here that blind, spiritual blindness, confusion, and groping, if you're just honest, this is your normal. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going on in the spiritual realm. And Jesus is offering you the wonderful, amazing gift of light and sight if you would trust in Christ. And, and anybody who's had any form of temporary blindness, you understand the ability to see is a wonderful gift that allows you to function in the world normally. Well, how do you function in this world spiritually if you don't know who you are and why you were made and what God's name is, and what God's heart is, and what happens when you die, and what is true, and what is right, and what is wrong, and what is my purpose? You, you can't pull these things out of thin air. You need the word of God, the light of Jesus Christ, to tell you that. And when God gives you spiritual eyes to see, it is one of the greatest gifts in the world. And I want to just take a moment. If you have never asked God to give you spiritual sight, I just want to encourage you. May today, right now, may this be the time you do it. I am not going to ask you to come up and wave a flag and get on your knees on the altar. Not at all. In fact, I want to just invite you in your heart and your mind right now to ask God to save you from your sin. Tell him you believe in him, that Jesus is your God and that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And if you're here today and that is, that is what you believe and you're ready to trust in Christ, his promise to you is so good. He will give you eyes to see. It, it'll take you a couple weeks to adjust to the light, right? But he'll give you the ability to not just see it, but to love the truth and the light. God, God will, will give you his Holy Spirit who will help you to give you the word which reveals the heart and the mind of God to you. To give you the people of God, imperfect as we are, to champion you and support you and to encourage you. He'll reveal to you in his word and by his spirit why you exist. And you can live a life that has spiritual light and clarity. And that is one of the greatest gifts that Jesus gives. And so this morning, if, if you want to trust in Christ, I want to invite you to do that. The wonderful thing is there's like no like mantra you have to say. We just tell people, tell God you're sorry and that you believe in him and ask him to forgive you and save you. And God is faithful to do exactly that. And if that's a decision you want to make, I want to give you just one of two next steps. Would you tell somebody that you came with or, or maybe if you didn't come with anybody, you can talk to anybody you see up front, myself included. And would you tell us that today you have made a decision to trust in Christ? And we want to just champion you and celebrate and help you take a next step with the Lord. Another option for next step is in, in a few minutes, we're going to take communion. Communion isn't magi magical. Communion is something that when you take this, you're making a declaration. So everybody who takes communion, we're declaring the same thing together in unity. We are declaring that we are sinners. Jesus is our God and Savior. We believe in him, that he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. It's a simple 
nonverbal declaration. And if you're ready to trust in Christ today, I wanna invite you, when we do partake of communion, would you join us and let that be your first declaration? But Village Church, our, our, our privilege is to believe in the light. And when you believe in Christ, we have spiritual eyes to see. Now, when we do partake of communion, um, some of you, if you've already trusted in Christ, be so grateful to God. We'll have a time of silence where you can pray and talk to him. Thank him that he has given you the joy of spiritual sight and purpose that you know what is real and true, and that is a gift that only comes for those who trust in Christ. Uh, I also encourage you, if you are here and maybe you're from a different church and you don't, you're like, I don't know what to do, I don't go to church here, I'm just visiting. If you have trusted in Christ, we wanna invite you to partake of communion with us. Uh, we are one in Christ, it doesn't matter where you go to church, and so when we do this, this is our opportunity for believers in this room together to declare and to remember. We are one in Christ not because we're good, but because Christ was good for us. So we're gonna have a time of silence. Then when the silence is, is done, um, I wanna invite you, we're gonna sing together. If you did not get elements on the way in, they're over the column to my left, also the column to my right, and then between the double doors. Uh, when, the, when we start singing together, I encourage you to get up and go grab them. And, and would you hold on to the elements until we're done singing? I'm gonna come back up, we'll read some scripture, and we're gonna partake together as a symbol of our unity in, in Jesus. So let's have a time of silence together.